Welcome to the Land Jam Podcast, a semi-friendly discussion between two blokes on watches, cars, and everything in between. Now, here are your hosts, Tommy and Sanjeev. Welcome to the Land Jam Podcast, episode 13. Se, 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 go. <laughs> and uh, for our younger listeners, uh, that's a reference to Phil Collins' uh, Susu Studio. So. Hello, everyone. Sanj and Tommy here. And it seems to me that Tommy is a 45-year-old man trapped in a 30-something-year-old <laughs> body. So, Sanj, I don't think I ever told you this. There is a policy for me at work on Fridays. <clears throat> it's called Phil Friday, where basically the uh, work playlist is all Phil Collins, so as much as possible. So uh, it's a little early. I know it's Wednesday, but uh, oh, boy. love Phil Collins. All right. Um, yeah, about that. I'm <laughs> glad I don't work on you, in your office. <laughs> um, I'll be having the headphones on when I were you. Oh, it's, it's, it's my headphone soundtrack, but still, it's, oh, it's my jam. Boy. It's my jam. All right, Sanj, what's going on? So today we're going to be talking about a few, I guess, releases uh, centering around Seiko and Omega. And then we have a couple of articles that we want to talk. And of course, our new tidbit on the podcast called Streaming for Gold, where we highlight few it's not streaming for gold it's streaming gold okay streaming gold um where we highlight a uh, few <laughs> netflix or any other <laughs> yeah it's our basically our uh, you know watch list recommendation or yeah you know what, what we're watching so uh pun intended right watch list recommendation yeah, that's that's the second pun, but I, something tells me you didn't get the first pun, so we're just gonna move on here. <laughs> yeah, let's let's get started. <laughs> All right. So as far you know, this is basically our catch up before Baselworld. Actually, Seiko has been really really busy, and uh, I think the thing that really caught people's eye the last couple of weeks is the Seiko Topper Ninja, which was um, I don't know if you're familiar with Topper Jewelers. They're they're out of uh, Burlingame, California. They're like a family store. Actually, pretty big in the watch game. Mm-hmm. Um, this is their seventh limited edition um, in total, and all their LEs are really solid. They actually had a really cool Oris Diver 65. They've had a couple Zodiac uh, LEs that are just awesome. So this is their first Seiko uh, limited edition. Um, reference number SPB107, and it's a build out of the SPB007, which is itself a uh, modern re- reimagining of that uh, 1968 high beat diver. Um mm-hmm. So they, you know, Seiko, as it's wont to do, basically brings back, reimagines a historic reference, and that's like three or four or five thousand dollars, and then they they bring something similar to that, similar to that look, similar to that case uh, in the SPB line, uh, more accessible. So basically, Topper took that SPB zero zero seven and reimagined it as the SPB one zero seven. Basically, if you, if you look at the watch, it's completely blacked out. Uh, white loom. Uh, the markers are uh, loom filled to the top, and they have this topper signature. Uh, topper does tries to do tries to do this with all his watches. It has the orange tipped seconds hand. Uh, and with, oh, okay. Kind of, I, I did not know that was a topper signature having the orange tipped seconds hand. Yeah, they they've tried to remain consistent with that little signature, and it's the only splash of color in the whole watch. The whole watch is monochromatic except for that. I gotta tell you, it looks pretty killer. You know, it's like it something... looks very tactical. 
very, it's like something special forces guys would wear, you know, exactly. Uh, it's a very cool watch. Um, they only made 500 um, and they're, they're almost mostly gone. I, I would assume they're already gone. Uh, it was probably time. gone the day it was released. Like the people who went to the jewelry store is probably. Yeah. I mean, actually it lingered for a little bit, but it was definitely in its last legs last time I checked. So I'm assuming it's already gone, but uh, you know, to the people that got it, it's, it's a, it's an awesome release. Oh, lucky them. Kind of jealous. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of limited edition Seiko releases, somebody else, another organization had quite the fanfare for their release. Yes. So basically, I will get to that. Um, the limited edition centers around the Seiko Alpinist. Um, it is the the model number is Seiko SPB089. And basically, it was released by Seiko exclusive to the U.S., via Hedinki, um, which is the well-known um, website, um, watch lifestyle website, and uh, how should I put it, I article. Mean, yeah. Yeah, what, the whole, you know, any, so, everything from, you know, Seiko SKXs to, you know, the Pateks, the Pateks you know, they, they yeah. cover the whole thing. It's a favorite read of both of ours, I'm pretty sure. Correct. And, it, you know, um, just a little bit of a background. I mean, Hadinki, they also have a Hadinki shop now, which they released, I believe, maybe a year or a year and a half, maybe even two years ago, where they center around vintage watches. But they slowly started um, selling um, unique releases. Um, if you go back, I think maybe last year, they released a limited edition Omega Speedmaster. Yeah, uh-huh. so that's that was the H10 Speedmaster. It yep. was the um, which was a killer release. If if you haven't seen it, to the listeners, look up Hodinki H10 Speedmaster. It is killer. Yeah, and it's fantastic. The use of color and everything, very unique. But um, what they did, what Seiko did with the, Hodinki this time is released a limited edition Seiko Alpinist. Um, and just to give you a background of the Alpinist, did you know that it was the third oldest Seiko line and spanned seven generations? I actually didn't know that. I always thought it was a quirky little side project that Seiko kept alive for decades. I didn't know it was so historic. It's very historic. Um, the legacy goes back to actually a line where it was Seiko released their first sports model back in 1959. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if it was the Seiko Alpinist that was released in 59 because there's an article which um, we'll post up here which details the history of the Alpinist. And they say that the first one was the Alpinist Laurel, which was released in 61. Anyways, it was inspired by, forgive my Japanese pronunciation, uh, Yama Otoko, which is Japanese for mountain men. So mountains cover much of the Japanese landscape and these mountain men that worked and spent time in the mountains required something that was rugged. So Seiko made a watch line or uh, watches catered to that that, uh, line of work. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's a great article provided by the springbar.com. You can, we can totally spend three episodes talking about the Alpinist, but we're not going to do that. (laughs) We're going to center around the limited edition one. Um, it's limited to 1959 pieces. Um, it's got, uh, basically a blue dial and it's got, uh, so for, for the listeners, so the most recent Seiko Alpinist line, which we've been hearing a lot of rumors that it's going to be discontinued is actually green, green with, uh, gold markers on hands, right? Correct. So the unique thing about 
that one, which is the SARB or the SARB 17. Um, I believe it's already discontinued. Um, but the unique thing about the green dial, it was it had a sunburst finish. Yeah. Um, me personally, I was never a fan of the Saab 17. I never liked the look. I never got into it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, though, everything about the watch, it, it kind of not appealed to me. Like, say the, even the hands, um, and the way I'm, the. I'm, new... I'm not a fan of cathedral hands. I, I've come to accept that. Yeah, it's something. I call it the like. Say, if you look at the hour end, it looks like a cobra. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but um. This one, though, it's got a sort of like a matte blue dial um, finish, a little slightly grainy in texture. And the unique thing about the Alpinist is it's got a rotating compass. Um, the what? Well, it's not, be... it's, not a, it's not a compass. It's, it's basically... not a true compass. Basically, you align it to the based on the position of the sun to see what your direction is there's yeah, a you, you align i think the minute hand to the sun and then you you take the middle reading between that and 12 o'clock something like that something like that um yeah. i never really read too much into it but it had that unique feature you know it's i mean why would to you? watch this is a watch podcast why would you yeah go on <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm not looking i mean i'm i'm not looking for the sun out here man uh basically we record these podcasts late into the night so what i'm looking for the moon yeah true yeah so <laughs> anyways going back to the watch um yeah it has a compass bezel the watch is actually a little bit bigger than the saab 17 it's got a 39.5 millimeter um case which is not too big at all still i mean normally you see typically watches from 40 and beyond yeah um the one other unique thing is it's got a shop shock absorbing system i think seiko calls it the dia shock and it's where the movement is protected i wanted to learn a little bit more about this and no one really seemed to provide true details but the the original alpinist is also dia shock but yes way. it is yeah. um the movement is based on the tried and tested uh 6r15 automatic movement with a 50 hour power reserve yeah um and the one other unique feature is the case back which is the closed case back. It's got engraving and it highlights the uh, what number of the 1959 pieces you bought. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a great watch. The unique thing is to me, um, A, I think the blue looks fantastic. Yeah, it's, I really like the blue. I the really blue, like the I blue. Think, it, I think even with the cathedral hands, it doesn't bother me because it's blue. I don't know why. I, I, I 100% agree with you. Um, I think it looks fairly vintage. I can, I can see myself buying this version of the Alpinist. But, so while you mention this, there is another version of the Alpinist. There right? is the Saab 13. Which is, yeah, the SARB 013, which is the white Alpinist. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, I really like the white. I think I might even like the white more than the blue. I still prefer the blue. Um, okay. Interesting. Interesting. So even though this is a limited edition, guess how much they're selling this for? Or we're selling this for because it's sold out. Uh, you tell me. 600 bucks. That's not bad at all. In the world of reissues, and That's even Seiko kind of sells dive watches um, for like 3,000 bucks, this is a fantastic price. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. I'm actually looking online on eBay. So there's actually, have you heard of the Red Alpinist? So there's another Alpinist called the 
Red Alpinist, which is a white dial like the one I just mentioned, the 017, but um, it has red red lettering for autumn, uh, Alpinist, and mm-hmm. it's actually a high beat movement in, in there. Wow. It's going for 875. It's very rare, but uh, yeah, there's actually one on eBay. So <laughs> while we're talking Alpinist, there's something else that you could go hunt for. It's got the it's got the Cyclops on the date. It's really really unique. It's really something else. <laughs> The Alpinist that I've come to love when I was scrolling through the history of the Alpinist yeah. is actually the what was the SARB 063. It's uh, PVD. Um, it's basically a monochrome palette where it's not much color, but it looks super tactical. Zero. Oh, wow. I've never seen this before. I mean, the hands are different, too. It's not actually cathedral it's, it's like not cathedral hands sword yeah sword hands so weird I, I i wouldn't even call this an alpinist but i guess technically it is yeah yeah I, I, what do you think about this one this is the one i would pick it's actually uses the same case as the skx 007 yeah um, but with the upgraded 6r15 movement no i dig it i dig it there's actually so while i was searching for this there's actually a steel version of that oh, wow. uh the sarb 059 it looks like something out of Tudor. It that's really cool. Look that up. Sarb zero five nine. So I'm looking at it right now. Uh, one second. I don't know how to type, but here we go. Oh wow. Oh yeah, I agree. It definitely looks like the Tudor, like the whole case. Yeah, it, it looks awesome, and especially. Well, we'll talk about it for the next uh, um, Basil World special. Yeah, I agree. Uh, hint, hint, we're, we're actually recording this in the future, but regardless, we'll talk about <laughs> it next episode, this looks eerily similar to something. It does. But, uh, I dig it. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So Blue Alpinist, very cool. Unfortunately, already sold out. I'm checking the site. Basically, this episode is about watches that have already been sold out. Let's Let's just let the public know. <laughs> Yeah, but I dig it. I think I think it's cool, and I, I love that Seiko keeps doing these, you know, limited edition little releases. Mm-hmm. I think that's so cool for such a giant corporation. Um, should we go on to the big one, the big reissue, Sanch? Sure. I mean, me personally is not a big reissue. I I dig the watch. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, yeah, it's it's nice. So okay, so for people who don't know. I'm referring to the Seiko uh, reissue of the 6105-8110, which is going to make its debut in Basel World um, next week. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Basically, it's so some promotional material leaked out on the internet and people just went nuts. And this is the reissue of the watch that Captain Willard wore from Apocalypse Now. So it's an, it's basically the Seiko 6105 from 1970. They're bringing it back. Um, it's it's a very popular vintage model, so people are very excited. Uh, a lot of people kind of remember the tuna, um, sorry, the turtle and how popular that was. So I, I think people are going to go apeshit crazy once this comes out. So rumor has it that the re-release reference code is going to be SPDX031 slash SLA033J. That is um, one big reissue code or model number. Yeah, I think that's two model numbers. SPDX is one and SLA is the gotcha. other. But uh, they're rumored to cost the yen equivalent of around 3,000 euro to 3,500 bucks. And they're calling it the King Turtle. Now, I don't know why they didn't go with another name. <laughs> it, it really doesn't look 
that totally to me because it's sort of like an asymmetric case, but irregardless, that's what they went with. Um, so this seems to be in line with their strategy. I think they're trying to go for the re-releases of the classic Seiko divers, right? So they started with the 62 MAS uh, a couple of years back mm-hmm. and you know, then the high beat diver. Um, so presumably what they're going to do is they're going <clears> to, <throat> they're going to release this $3,000 version, which is, you know, faithful to the original. And then they'll bring something into the SPB line, which will be like a reimagining modern sort of twist on it. Um, so it's exciting, you know. I mean, am I a little bit? It is exciting. I give Seiko full credit for these reissues. You know, it gets the crowd excited, gets people excited. But for this particular one, King Turtle, take care. Why? What's the matter? You don't like it? Thirty-five hundred euros. Hey, look, man. Like this. This is a historic reissue. They're bringing it back an original. The Alpinist was a historic issue, and it was six hundred bucks. I, th- I think this watch is more story than the Alpinist. I'm sorry. Like, th- this watch is actually very popular with collectors in the vintage market. This had a big oh, history. Oh, I can see the collectability. I yeah. agree. I mean, I'm not denying any of that, but yeah. I mean. It's a bigger mark. It, it's a bigger, more famous Oh, um, I don't know. At least for the American market, I'm because not... you've got that whole Vietnam War history. You got Martin Sheen wearing yeah, I it. I guess. People know this watch. People know this. The layperson knows this watch more than they know the Alpinist. So I get why they're going with it. I, I yeah, get $3, it. $3,000 for a dive I, watch, which is, you know, I, I get it. That's a little bit much. But look, I mean, we didn't complain when they did that for the X62 MAS or the, or the high beat diver, right? When they brought that. Back. Oh, I did. Well, you're consistent, but wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I did. In the previous episode of the episode, Why shouldn't before, they? We were... it's a historic re release. They should. Three thirty-five. This better be like six hundred meters death resistance or something. I I you don't know. know. Sanj, if that said Rolex on it, you'd be like, "Oh my god, this is quite the steal." No, I oh, won't because nineteen seventy re-release. Oh, it's so exciting! Oh, they changed the blue on the bezel. Yeah, that's, that's love like, it. Rolex charges like eight to ten grand for that. Hey, yeah, you're still getting. Do you see? You're still getting a professional dive watch re-release, vintage vibes. 3500 I still think it's a good deal. Will I pay for it? No, I will not pay for it. <laughs> but that's because I'm broke as hell. That doesn't have anything to do with what I think is a value here. Because I, you spent all your money fixing your JPS. That's right. Now I'm good to go. <laughs> <laughs> but Which I would still spend over this watch. Yeah, I mean, look, I, it's not for everybody. And I think, you know, if you have a Seiko Turtle, from 2016 i think it, you know for me that it scratches that itch so like i don't really need to get this like it's yeah. same era watch you're looking at a different different uh reference and I, and I understand why this reference is important and famous and i love that but uh you know that itch doesn't really need to be scratched for me right now but you know i think it's yeah. exciting and by the way it's, it is exciting it's, i mean i'm not denying i mean f- to those who get this watch you know congratulations i hope you truly enjoy it but me personally no thanks. Um, the one thing I do you, you find it unique is the asymmetric cushion case. And the crown is protected. Yep. Which is yep. Very well protected, actually. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, um, it, it's a great watch, and you know, um, let me check on the eBay market right now. So, the historic to the listeners out there, um, Tommy is the eBay connoisseur for collectible watches. I've, I've... Made a couple purchases. So actually, interesting. So when I first started tracking this reference, when I was looking for a classic dive watch, okay, you could have gotten a Seiko sixty-one hundred five for about three to four hundred bucks. Okay, mm-hmm. the first couple hits of ones that are in good condition 
we're talking 1050 bucks, 1025, 1795, 2760. And this one's mint. Okay. Okay. So this reference. I don't know what happened. I don't know if it's just more collectible and people love Seiko Divers or whether people heard about the new re-release. So this jumped up in price. But, you know, the days of picking up this mark for 400 bucks, I think, is gone, you know? Um, yeah, I think people are starting to recognize Seiko collectibles, like Seiko, vintage Seiko, absolutely. let's just say. Absolutely. Like, you can see the price of a bullhead. You and I were looking maybe a couple years ago at a bullhead, and we were like – you know, uh, you know, three, four hundred bucks. I'm not so sure. Now you can barely find a, a mint condition one for like say, eight hundred, yeah. maybe to a yeah. thousand now. They're, 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 the bullheads, especially. Yeah, I mean, I have the sixty-one thirty-eight eight zero three nine, the John Pair Special, and like that was, I waited almost a year to get one that I was willing to put money down for. And uh, mm-hmm. and those chronographs also just turned fifty, which is the sixty-one thirty-eight thirty-nine model right the auto- automatic chronograph right. so i mean i'm i'm assuming those watches are going to start climbing up on price too like i've been hunting for a seiko poke for months and i think more than months maybe a year at least yeah. we would be talking about this for a while. yeah and i i just you know it's very difficult like there's a lot of pokes out there but there's a lot of franken pokes there's a lot of weird dials there's a lot of uh, people doing something with weird hands and you know i've just haven't been comfortable enough to squeeze the trigger so but uh, you know all those historic seiko references are climbing in value so you know they're, they're definitely being recognized that's for sure yeah i mean the only frankenstein watch i would do to a seiko is the skx i think there's a huge community behind it too and it's yeah i mean that's, it's an affordable that's watch really um, but i mean i'm talking about someone who's it, taking an old watch and like changing the hands of the yeah lying to i know i know yeah. yeah you're talking about modding modding yeah i mean yeah sure which is you know very common and people love that stuff oh yeah i mean some i've started to know that on notice that on instagram some yeah, very yeah. nice mods too like even i'm considering maybe i should mod vine i don't know yeah you should why not yeah you know uh and also shame, shameless uh plug for our own instagram uh account all right at the land jam pod so please follow us Oh yeah, please, please do. Actually, I don't. I, I mean, it is our podcast, um, and we are promoting our podcast. And shameless plug. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I think that covers it. So, but you know, at this stage in time, this is still very much a rumor, but the promotional photographs are out. So I, I think this is for real, and I wouldn't be surprised. You think so? I mean, uh, we you... posted the promos; they look legit. You know, so I'm not, I don't think anyone's mocking this. I think this is for real. Um, so we'll find out. We'll find out once Basel World comes and goes, whether we were right or wrong. But I, I wouldn't be surprised. And by the way, yes. I, by the way, Seiko's presentation to Basel World is, I think, on the 21st. They're, they're on way. Yes. So, yeah. So um, the, the one that's rumored, which not officially a reissue yet, is the Seiko Arnie. So this is also something watch. that the forums have been talking about. Um, but again, a lot of yeah, chatter, no, no firm indication. Yeah. But go on. Essentially. Yeah. What is the, Arnie? so basically the Arnie is basically the model number is the Seiko H558-5009. The reason why they call it the Arnie watch is because a certain actor that many people may not have back. heard of, his name is, may have not heard of, or Who I'm just kidding. Who is your daddy Please. and what does he do? 
Yeah, uh, that's a poor um, rendition of Arnold Schwarzenegger, but of course, the action superstar Arnold it's Schwarzenegger. It's not a Puma. Go on. <laughs> Get to the chopper. <laughs> there, I, I got one out of you. All right, go on. <laughs> Anyways, um, I was going to say shut up and like he did in <laughs> Kindergarten Kit Cop, but you know. But anyways, um, when he was a mega, mega superstar, I mean, he blew up in the 80s. Um, with, with I don't think he needs to tell people films. who Arnold Schwarzenegger is, but go on. <laughs> I mean, we are in 2019. I mean, I don't think, I don't think many kids. No, I'm pretty sure every kid knows who Arnold Schwarzenegger is. I'm sorry. It's, he's not that old. Uh, he's crossing, getting to 70. All right. All right, Sanj, tell people who Arnold Schwarzenegger is. All right. Anyways, anyways, let's get this going. Let's get this going. Anyways, um, when he was in the Commando and the Predator, he wore this particular watch called uh, Seiko H558-5009. Arnold Schwarzenegger was also a collector, but he also loved this particular watch for its ruggedness. Um, And the unique thing about this particular watch was it was the first dive watch to feature a digital alarm chronograph along with an analog display. It's an Anadigi, one of those weird Anadigi watches. Yes, that's right. Um, And the one thing unique about this is that Seiko actually tested this watch in this extreme condition, such as testing it from negative 40 to 60 degrees Celsius. Um, So pretty impressive. Um, And Arnie was a big fan. It was also used... This particular watch was also used in expeditions, not done by Arnie, but other people, um, to the North and South Poles, and then teams of explorers that have climbed Everest. So we're talking about extremely rugged, something that suits uh, Schwarzenegger's character. Um, And yeah, he used it. But apparently there's a reissue coming out. So I've seen a mock-up with the Prospects logo on it. Uh, Or yeah, I think it's a Prospects logo, and it's a solar version. So it looks like it's going to be... Uh, quartz again, uh, which makes sense. It's got to be Anna Digi, uh, but uh, that's the only rumor. It's just, it's just, a, it's just a snapshot. That's it. Yeah. So don't blame us if it really doesn't come to fruition. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, these vintage watches, the Arnie used to be around on eBay. Very, quite a bit rare now. I think a lot of people have woken up to it. Um, they're actually mm-hmm. a bit of a nightmare. To service apparently um, I don't know if you ever watched Spencer Klein on YouTube do you know what that is no but go so on, sorry. he is a watch repair guy from outside of Denver I think and he runs uh, Klein Vintage Watch which is like a vintage watch store and he has all these videos um, basically he's like a he's like the Seiko watch repair guy like in, Amer- in America nice. and he's awesome if you have, you know I Sanj I would recommend you start watching his videos they're great and oh, yeah we'll do yeah thanks definitely, for the recommendation definitely. and he does one on the Arnie and he's like servicing an Arnie and talking about just how difficult it is to get the gaskets and the parts for this watch because it's just one specific line from the 80s that you know once you're 30 years removed from when this thing is produced, it's tough. It's tricky to get part. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, to the listeners out there who have never seen the Arnie, just to give them a short description of what it looks like, um, the dial looks like an SKX 007. Um, and it, it, the case, it's got the bezels kind of protected by an outer case, like the Seiko Tuna. And the digital uh, screen is above the 12 o'clock position where you can do certain digital features such as a 
alarm on a chronograph. Yeah. So the so the big problem with this watch is that that shroud that goes around the bezel mm. that shroud gets corroded, and then it's very difficult to replace that. So there you go. Gotcha. But uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty cool watch. I, I gotta say, it's very unique, and uh, it's something that I think a lot of people. I want to say like 10 years ago, somebody did the research and pinned down the model number and it became a thing. Uh, but it's a really cool watch. It's very unique. And... I, yeah, I agree with you 100%. Uh, I, I do hope to bring it out. It'll be a, a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, okay. So I think that's the end of our Seiko adventures or adventures in Japan. So we're going to go back to familiar territory, Sanch. You know what that means. I mean, we were already in familiar territory with Seiko. <laughs> okay, more familiar territory because right now. Oh, by the way, wristwatch check. What are you wearing? I am absolutely wearing absolutely nothing. Naked. Um, He's I on was, the loose, people. Yeah, I am on the loose. I'm loving it. Um, but early in the day, I was wearing actually the SKX. Look at you. Um, I do have to break out the Seamaster. It's been a while since I've worn that one. The the kids watch right. Which which one was this? The watch that you like. I do like that watch. I'm not gonna lie to you. So I will break that out, and I will start wearing that more often. All right, we got to get a wrist wristwatch uh, shot for the uh, gram. All right, don't forget. Yeah, we'll do. We'll so, do. So, uh, you know, pivoting off that, what did I wear today? I wore the Speedmaster. And what are we talking about? We're talking about um, Apollo 11. The 50th anniversary uh, Speedmaster that, that just got announced by Omega. So, so for people that don't know, Swatch Group is not participating in Baselworld. So they're just releasing their watches, you know, not willy nilly, but in parallel. So that you know they're not waiting for Baselworld. So they announced, um, to much fanfare, this uh, Apollo 11 50th anniversary uh, gold Speedmaster. Uh, and the story, you know, it's based on a, on a historical reference. So you know, I'll tell you the story. So in, in July 69, you know, uh, Apollo 11 landed on the moon, much fanfare, you know, they brought back all the moon rocks, they, they did a world tour, you know, these were like the, the three most famous people in the world. Um, mm-hmm. And in November 69, there was an astronauts appreciation dinner that was held in Houston. So basically, you know, Apollo 11, all the other astronauts were in attendance, you had politicians, um, you had all these luminaries and Omega basically presented all the astronauts and the key uh, operational people at NASA with this special Speedmaster. It was a gold Speedmaster. It was a uh, code number BA145-0, uh, sorry, dot 22 18 mm-hmm. karat gold, uh, burgundy bezel, and these black onyx markers. Um, they produced around 1,014 of these models. Uh, with each astronaut being offered. And the ironic thing is Neil Armstrong was, and they're numbered, by the way, and Armstrong was actually number 17, not number one, <laughs> even though he's the first yeah. man on the moon. Uh, but they numbered it based on the number of the missions, right? Like, say, Apollo 1, Apollo 2, or am I mistaken? I'm not sure if like it's how... by seniority or how it how the ordering was. Actually, if you go to, I'll put a link in, in the show notes to the Fratello watches. Uh, there's actually a reference to who got what number. Uh, so it's pretty interesting to like pick your favorite uh, astronaut and see what number they got. Uh, but actually, President Nixon and the Vice President were also given uh, these watches. And officially, they declined, but who knows what Tricky Dick really did. And uh, some 900 of these were actually sold to the general public. Um, 
So, you know, this is a very historic model. Uh, I, I know this is not an operational Moonwatch Speedmaster, but, it, you know, it harkens back to this massive achievement and that, that night where, you know, these guys had the appreciation dinner. So, mm-hmm. you know, what did Omega do? So they reissued a coaxial uh, tri-register Speedmaster, not by Compact, like they do their coaxials now. Um, it's still a wind-up manual uh, with this decorated movement. They're calling it the 3861. Uh, it's got a so basically the back of the watch has a, a viewing uh, glass, sapphire glass. Uh, the interesting thing about the movement is it's chronometer certified, Mita's chronometer certified, um, and it's actually not gold. So the original was 18 karat gold. This is this moonshine gold alloy. Uh, is it like a ro- it looks like a rose gold kind of color? Yeah, you know, it kind of reminds me of um, basically. Um, Rolex and their proprietary uh, gold, which I forgot yeah. the name. What do they call that? Rolosaur, maybe? Is it? Is that what it is? I don't know. I, I don't. I, Oyster gold. Oyster gold. I, I can't. That, that sounds familiar. But you know, they've got this alloy that they 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 put in, in instead of gold in some watches, and I think Omega's got their own thing. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. You know, it's got a, it's got it's got a cool exhibition case back with the moon and the earth, and I think it actually has a meteorite in the dial or in, in the case back. Really? Yeah, it's it's really weird. Um, well, you know, so, you know, like the original, they produced 1,014 pieces. Um, I don't know what... All sold out, probably. Well, you know, 32,000 Swiss francs. I don't know how many how many of them sold out. Um, I'm sure... I'm sure oh, there will be a lot of people out there that will still I'm buy sure it. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of like it. Uh, what do you think, Sanch? I, I know this is kind of polarizing. It is very polarizing. Um... So because of the history of why Omega did it, you know, it was a reissue based on a, you know, a vintage release. Um, I, I get why they did it, you know, to celebrate the Apollo mission. Yeah. But would I buy this? Mm, as an investor collector, sure. But as a collector, no. Why is that? I can see this watch appreciating in value. Quite a bit. Okay. But um, you just don't like I it. think the desirability is there. I just don't like it. I prefer old school, you know, the well, original Speedmaster. I mean, if just you've the got regular... 32,000 Swiss francs, I assume you can get the original Speedmaster too. They're not They're not exclusive. I'm I mean, like... The, judge the... it on its own merits. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just the gold effect. It's kind of like the, you know, if, if, if Omega were to pull a Rolex and release a Speedmaster, this is what they would yeah. do. No, I hear you. Precious. It's nice. Don't get me wrong. It's nice, but uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm on the I fence. I really like it. I, I think for me, you're right. The gold is kind of polarizing and it's not really my cup of tea. Um, but, you know, I, I it's got a certain charm to it. I, I kind of dig it. I I can see the charm. I mean, I totally do. Like I said, I'm on the fence. I mean, um, I see the the value in it, and I see why they did it. I understand it. You know, it's the 50th anniversary. You know, the Golden Jubilee. It kind of makes sense. Um, and I like how they did the decorative in the background. You know, with the open sapphire yeah. case back. You can see the movement clearly, which is really cool. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I uh, it's polarizing, but I, I dig it. I like I like them for doing it. Um, this is, by the way, not going to be the watch release this year because we spoke about how you know 2019 is the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. 
they definitely have this three two one movement re-release that they're going to bring back and i'm sure it's mm-hmm. going to be the basically a full recreation of the watches that um you know buzz aldrin and neil armstrong wore michael collins as well wore to the moon so right. that's still coming so this is not this is not the Speedmaster release of the year but you know as one of them i think it's pretty cool here's a little small side topic of discussion based on sure. the Speedmaster. um not the the re-release but the original watches the gold watches that were given to the astronauts would you say that neil armstrong's number 17 145.022 uh omega speedmaster might be the most valuable speedmaster so keep in mind that the original the, the man the moon missions were issued by the government yeah and i i think i've mentioned this before armstrong's original speedmaster was destroyed so he left yeah. it on the limb uh, because the clock failed, and then he forgot to bring it back. So that that got jettisoned into space. God knows where that is. So if there's going to be one quintessential Neil Armstrong Speedmaster, it would be the gold one. So yeah, I would, exactly. Uh, I would argue, yeah, probably the most valuable one. I don't know where it is. I have no idea what happened to it. But uh, yeah. It'll be cool if they if if it was say shown to the public, you know, some you know if the Armstrong family has it and decided to release it, um, it'll be kind of nice. To yeah, see that. yeah, for sure. I mean, it's you know it's historic. It that that's the one. That's the one. Very, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a Paul Newman. Paul Newman. Yeah, detail. if Paul Newman landed on the moon, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, man. So I think we covered our watches that we wanted to mention uh, in this episode. Uh, should we move on to streaming gold? Yes, streaming gold, not streaming for gold. I apologize. So what do you got? So as many of the fans or listeners, or maybe not, um, there is a sport called Formula One. Um, anyways, so Formula One, the season has started for 2019. And what Formula One has done, the organization, which is actually really cool, is they released a Netflix documentary that highlighted the 2018 season, which is actually really a first for Formula One. In the 20-something years that I've seen Formula One live, um, they've never done anything like this. I kind of applaud them for releasing something to the public as a documentary, and it it, it shows a lot of backstories and behind the scenes that you really don't see during the race weekends, which is really cool. Yeah, it's pretty um, cool. I I just started watching. But for it. me, yeah, it's it's great. I mean, it, it it adds some drama to what goes in the background. I mean, if you ever seen the get to the fourth episode, I believe, which is the friction between Renault and yeah. Red Bull, that was kind of cool. That was actually really cool. Um, and uh, a couple of things, Mercedes and Ferrari were absent. Um, I have, don't know the reason off the top of my head, but I've read and heard that, and it makes sense. I mean, these were the two competing teams vying for world championship glory. So I think they were busy, you know, preparing for battle instead of, you know, talking in front of a so video So is this the season that Daniel Ricciardo won? Danny Ricardo won two races, two or three races. He won Monaco, um, especially the, he won Monaco. He's a bit of a Monaco specialist. Gotcha. Um, he's won it in the past. I think he's more won it in twenty. 
17 or 16, but he's really good on the streets of Monaco. Um, but uh, yeah, highly recommend it. Um, and well, well done. I, I, I'm truly nice. enjoying it. Nice. Yeah, I got, I got to, I got to get back into it. I've already seen one episode, so I'm a bit behind, but uh, I will get back into it. I mean, you're one season behind. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, <laughs> um, very exciting. We'll have to watch it. So, I guess my rep- my recommendation is a movie. It's currently on Amazon Prime. It's called Battle of Britain, and it's got Michael Caine, and he's a Spitfire pilot, and that's all you need to know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> two, two, two favorite yeah, things Michael for Caine Tommy. And Spitfire. Yeah. So this is. Uh, uh, I was gonna say World War Two and Spitfires, go. but I love Michael, Michael Caine. Caine. Sure, why not? So, I almost clicked on the Netflix. This is without even you telling me about it. Um, like a, over the weekend, I was curious. I'm like, oh, this popped up. I was planning to watch it, but I it, it was on Amazon. It. Prime. I kind of not, not Netflix. Sorry, yeah. Amazon Prime. But I ended up watching uh, Chef's Table so, on Netflix, which is yeah, also by the way. Good, by the way, yeah. So <laughs> just about this movie. But, so it came out in 1969. So it's within 30 years of the actual Battle of Britain. So a lot of the planes mm-hmm. in the movie, Spitfires and the Messerschmitt uh, 109s, are either World War II vintage or, or from that era. You know, So they're actually, nice. there's no CGI. They're using real planes. They're using real pilots. Um, obviously, they've had to do a little bit of effects work for explosions and stuff like that. But uh you know, you know, some of the effects work does look a little aged, but you know, as far as the story of the Battle of Britain, it's actually a pretty good telling of the basic story, like how it went through and what the strategy was on both sides and how it kind of played out. Um, it's very entertaining. Michael nice. Caine's in it. No, I definitely need to watch it. I, I agree yeah, with actually, you. On that one. I think uh, a couple months ago or last year when Dunkirk came out, uh, you sent me a video with the Dunkirk soundtrack and video from this movie that was spliced together. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, same oh, movie. Yeah, Michael Caine's in that. Yeah, so. Oh, yeah. gotcha. So Sweet. It's about basically okay. the Royal Air Force and their fight in the Battle of Britain. Great movie. Gotta watch it. Nice. Nice. Um. So, yeah, that's our streaming All right, gold. so. And now closing notes. We will end. Closing notes. All right. Well, I think it's uh, that time of day again. We're going to go off to closing notes. Sanj, what do you got? So the first one I'm going to talk about here is an interesting article that was released by the New York Times. It was actually, I think, today they released it. And yeah. the it's titled, uh, it's a long title, actually. It's Watches Are Yet Another Way, which, let me re-say, let me re-say this. Watches Are Yet Another Way, Easy Way, Rich People Make Their Money Into More Money. So a lot of vintage collectors are generally, you know, those who have deep pockets, they generally have a collection and they, you know, they they go for very specific watches. Um, and, you know, maybe vintage Patex, vintage Rolexes, vintage APs. Anyways, long story short, I mean, what we've seen over the past years is just generally the value of these vintage watches just go up in value. And depending on certain watches they've just skyrocketed in value um it's like people just you know either there's a market all of a sudden or people are just seeing the the history the provenance the the vintage feeling of it um and just just doubling down and buying um really interesting article 
That's so good. I'll have to give it a read, Sam. So it centers around Rolexes. Um, from what I've read so far, you know, the Submariner, like say the Mail Sub or like say the Rolex from the eighties. Um for example, there was a gentleman named Mr. Hen Dizade, who's a young guy, and he has a nineteen eighty two Rolex Submariner for thirteen grand, and in two years it has appreciated ten thousand dollars more in value. See, I just feel like this is an indication that there's a Rolex bubble. And I, I'll tell you why, right? Because, because you know, much like the stock market idiom where if the retail finally gets to hear something, there's already a bubble and it's going to burst. Like, I feel like, yeah, great. Now the New York Times wrote an article. So, you know, the good times are already over as far as the public <laughs> collection is concerned, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and it Rolex does touch insane. on the skyrocket values. Um you know, like say the mill sub from back in the day, or like say the reference 55, 12, or 13, and where it has like a red dot on the 12 o'clock bezel, or, or, or like the red lettering. You know, like even if it has scratches or a tropical dial or uh, a, a dial that's actually even cracked, it, it adds, it actually adds value to the watch, uh, which is interesting. Yeah, patina. Man. Patina, patina, yeah, it's all about the patina. Like, I'm going to get. Uh, a, a light and just put my watches under it and, and just let it shine. Accelerated that's, that's the way to go. Yeah. Well, except you're not wearing a watch, so fail. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm just going to burn my hand. Um, there you go. But yeah, I mean, there's the, it, it touches upon, you know, watches, uh, vintage watches. For example, like the old Swiss brand Universal. Uh, Universal Genie. Yep. And, you know, it touches upon the watch that the Formula One racer, uh, Jochen Rint, wore. Um, you know, it was a watch, I would say, $2,800 in 2011. Now it, it, it's worth $30,000. I mean, wow. it's crazy. That's crazy. And of, of course... You mean, you mean that specific watch, not not just a example of that preference? I mean, no, actually, I think it may have been that reference. Oh, oh. I, to be honest, actually, I think it may have been that reference. Okay. Um, the the big one being the Paul Newman's Paul Newman Daytona. I mean, that sold for seventeen point eight million dollars. Yes, the Paul Newman Daytona, not any Paul Newman the, Daytona from that year. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, it's like Paul's Newman's own Paul. Gotcha, Daytona. Gotcha. Um, but you know, um, it it you know interviews with Benjamin Clymer, who is uh, one of the founders the founder of Hideki, and uh, the founder. He's got a couple of watches where he describes where you know he's hit the jackpot. Where it's just in terms of value yeah. appreciation, it's just yeah. We spoke about the uh, Speedmaster H10. That was his idea. It's one of his favorite. He actually has the original. You know, Speedmaster H10, the reference that it's based on. Love that watch so much that he asked uh, Omega to do the uh, H10 version. Yeah, and he even agrees. Certain watch watches, such as the Daytona, have gotten silly, as he puts it. You know, like he says, uh, "Let me quote: We watch references worth twenty thousand, twenty-five thousand, twenty-eleven, all of a sudden worth fifty thousand in in in, in like mm-hmm. a span of a few years, and right. then." 
to eighty thousand and now cool to sixty five thousand. Rolex is another world, man. I I can't, uh, you know, I I just can't get my head around it. I don't understand it. I think it's uh, somewhere between hype and just insanity. So I don't get it. You know. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I mean, this is yet another episode where we unfortunately yeah. bash on Rolex, which is a great watch yeah, company. Which we both I love, do love Rolex. Love, but, uh, some, you know, just I don't understand it. IWC is another one. It's like I call it the German Rolex. I mean, I love their watches, but overpriced. Yeah, IWC, yeah, I don't get either. I mean, actually, if you remember, that was probably one of the first watch companies that I really got into. You know, if you remember us talking early. It was an IWC. I like the mm-hmm. Top Gun, you know. But then, you know, the more I looked around, I'm like, eh, actually, Omega's got it going on, and Seiko, and all these other guys are doing interesting stuff too. I don't know why IWC commands such a, you know, premium. It's nuts. I don't get it. But you know what? People still buy them, and fair play to IWC yeah. and Rolex. I mean, supply and That's demand, my friend. Is. So we're going to uh, shift away to the last closing note, and this is something close to my heart. And we discussed it earlier today. Um, 2019 is the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, the historic first uh, walk on the moon. And in theaters, and I think, you know, for one week it was in IMAX and now it's in regular theaters. But if in any way, shape or form, if you can watch it on a big screen, there's a new Apollo 11 documentary uh, that's out. Um out by Neon Films, and it's actually an amazing documentary. It's like the most amazing footage I've ever seen in theater. It's like watching Interstellar with Matthew McConaughey if that was a documentary. Yeah. Really? And and there's a great New York Times article, which I'm also going to include in the show notes, basically the story behind the footage and the audio from Apollo 11. Like, where was this footage for 50 years? And apparently the story is that MGM and NASA had a deal where MGM would shoot uh, portions of all the Apollo missions from, I think, Apollo 8 to 13, 14. And they would shoot it in 65 millimeter film, which is pretty close to IMAX. Yeah. So they have dozens of these reels of film that they shot. Uh, The deal fell through. The movie never got made. Uh, it was supposed to be a movie about you know the Apollo program and space exploration. It never got made, and these reels were just sent into storage, and they just sat in storage. And the thing is, sixty-five millimeter reels are very expensive to develop, so nobody bothered to even look and to see what's in the film. So it just sat there. And um, once you know the fiftieth anniversary of Apollo Eleven was coming up, there were projects floated to you know see if you can do a documentary. Uh, the director producer of the film, you know started looking around and found these reels and he said yeah I'll, I'll take them i'm just curious what's in there and he developed it and it is the most amazing footage i mean you're seeing the, you're seeing the astronauts nice. suiting up you're seeing the launch of apollo 11 in imax you know landscape it it's amazing i i can't tell you how amazing it is the the sound is awesome they actually picked up i think eleven thousand hours of conversation between the astronauts on the mission and also mission control on the ground and between the astronauts and mission control. And Dave, um, there's a documentarian. It's an amazing story. He actually takes every uh, part of the audio file and puts it on a master timeline. So, you know, 25 minutes into the mission, this is what, this is when this conversation took place because it syncs with XYZ, you know, command from Houston to Apollo 11 or vice versa. Um, so it's amazing. So you're watching something in real time that, you know, these guys piece together and, uh, there's a great article in the New York times about how they did it. 
Um, it, that in itself is an achievement. Uh, but yeah, I can't recommend enough. You know, you got to go see Apollo 11. I want to see it again. I've already ordered the Blu-ray. It's awesome. It's already uh, You can pre-order it. Uh, it's coming out in May, but uh, I would recommend if it's still in theaters to watch it on the biggest screen possible because it's worth it. Um, so two things. I am going to likely make a pre-order on the Blu-ray. And secondly, we talked about this earlier um, and I had no idea they were still playing this because I thought I missed a chance given my schedule. And now I'm going to find a way to get to the theater and watch it because I think it's like, you know, you are hyping it up. I'm actually You've desperate to see, to see it. it. Um, I think one of the coolest parts of it is there's footage from the moonwalk that I've never seen. So I don't know how I've never seen it. Like, I think I've seen so many times that moonwalk, but there's footage from another camera that I've never seen of both Buzz and uh, Neil on the moon. And then the actual moon landing, which I've never seen the whole landing from beginning to end. So basically the documentary shows um, the Eagle detaching from the command service module, slowly turning to the moon. And all you see is the time elapsed and the, and the fuel that's left over. It's like a little gauge in the lower left of, of the screen. So as wow. the as the lamb is going toward the moon, you see you you slowly see the the gauge coming down on the fuel, and you can hear the chatter. All right, we're looking for a landing spot, and then you know you're seeing Neil Armstrong basically dodge rocks and boulders and terrible places to land, and all the while you're seeing in real time from minute from beginning to end that fuel gauge slowly tick down, and like you can hear Houston saying, "All right, man, you got to make a decision here." <laughs> And he, he, yeah, he I mean, um, I remember this was also displayed in First yeah. Man too. I mean, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but the the original moon landing site wasn't as deemed landing worthy because it was just very uneven and you know pretty terrainous. Yeah, um, and so Neil Armstrong had to make a quick decision, go manual, and he, land he made this a thing. Call. Yeah, so, and during the landing, if you remember First Man, um, the Apollo. Uh, guidance computer on the lamb just overwhelmed like it could not handle the radar which was supposed to be part of the guidance mechanism so he just shut it down he ignored the alarms and kept going and you can hear that yeah i believe it said like a i can't believe i think it was like a 12 or 2 code or something it was a master alarm yeah and they didn't know what it was they they had no idea they just had to make a call well they did but at the time when they was sounding alarm they if i correct me if i'm wrong but mission control was freaking all about it and then they had one engineer who knew the no, intricacies no, no. of the you're, you're mixing up computer. you're mixing up uh apollo 12 or 14 well, the sce sce okay you know one of the apollo missions flew through a lightning storm and the electrical system shorted out and that engineer stepped in to save it this was actually uh, they didn't know what the alarm was, so they had to make a call. And later on, they figured out, Mission Control figured out, okay, it's just the computer over, like, getting overwhelmed. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's what I was coming to. I thought the engineer said no, it's just an overflow out, code. They didn't figure it out in, in time, so they just had to go with it. Okay, gotcha. Then I'm mixing up too, because I knew that code exactly. was an overflow yeah, code. Yeah, it was just the computer I... couldn't handle all the computing. So, um, But yeah, it's, it's amazing. You, you see that in real time. You, you hear him just saying, Listen, wow. I'm just going to go for it. And uh, that is... Didn't they land with like 2% like of fuel left? Fuel or two seconds? Tank. But, I mean, 
when you see yeah. the actual footage, you understand why he did that, right? Because when you when you see the moon landing footage, usually on TV, it's just the last three seconds. You see that you see basically the claw, sorry, the 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 landing pads touch the moon, and you know you made it. You don't see all the stuff you have to dodge to get to that part. Um, so it's really amazing. And then you know they splice in all the HD photographs that not HD, but you know the the Hasselblad photographs that they took on the moon. Um, it's really stunning. It's stuff that I've I've never seen. So nice. I, you know, to all the listeners out there, especially you, Sanj, make the time. It's only like I think less than two hours. You gotta watch it. I don't care if it was seven hours. I, you I gotta need watch to it. get and, there. and the soundtrack is awesome. Actually, the guy uh, that did the soundtrack, um, it's all synth music, and he only used instrumentation that was available in 1969. So it's like listening to like a Pink nice. Floyd album um, while you're watching the moon landing. Really awesome. Yeah. So basically, I should go to this uh, movie, drive to the movie with yeah, Dark Side of the Moon. It's pretty much Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, actually, right. that, I think of that when I, I actually download the soundtrack into my iPod, and it's my work uh, soundtrack, and uh, it's awesome. <laughs> Two things of what you just said. A, you know, good call on, on, on the soundtrack, and B, you're one of the very few that still rocks Hey, man, keeping it real. I like to keep my iPod and iPhone separate, all right? So that's how we operate. <laughs> All right, so I think that's uh, all we had uh, for this episode, right, Sesh? Yeah, I think we can we can talk more about Apollo Eleven, but let's just call we, it we a can day go on with this episode. Uh, but yeah, thank you again for listening to episode thirteen. Say say Seiko. Yeah, say, and say, say, uh, please all right, follow thank us you, on uh, Twitter and uh, Instagram and. Uh, Please subscribe to whatever listening service you've got, whether it's uh, iTunes or SoundCloud or whatnot. Uh, so we're going to keep doing this on the regular, and especially our Basel World episode will be coming up very soon. Thank you. <laughs>